Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Alex. Good morning, church family. Josh here. Today we finish our six-week series called Making Progress. And here's the summary statement that we've been using. A lot can happen when you have a unified, a well-led, a focused, loving, trusting, and hope-filled church. Today we're going to talk about hope. What does it mean to be hope-filled? Hope is so necessary in making progress because it helps us to see future forward, where we're going to be. How can you move forward if you're not looking forward? What are you looking forward to today? Write it in the chat. What are you looking forward to? I want to say a few things about the One Name campaign, and Alex referenced this. Skip Heitzig, who's the pastor at Calvary Church in New Mexico, I think it's Albuquerque, New Mexico, He said, the way to win the world is not to hold concert events each night and see multiple people saved. We often think that way, don't we? Let's just build a big event, let's get a lot of people to come, and let's see people give their lives to Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that. But check out this math. This is what we put in the newsletter this past week, and I want to to take a moment to explain it to you. Let's say you reach one person with the gospel this year, that one name that you've been thinking of, praying for, sharing and showing Christ to. The following year then, you both agree to reach one person each with the gospel. That means in two years time, there will be three new followers of Jesus. But let's imagine this continues the following year and the year after that. Let let me give you some math, you ready? In five years time, 31 people will have been added to the church. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Praise God. In 10 years' time, 1,000 people will have come to faith. 1,000 people in 10 years' time. But get this. In 15 years, the number will now be 32,000 people. (laughs) And if you can believe this, in 20 years, 1 million people. In 25 years, 33 million people. In 30 years, a billion people. In 33 years, the whole world population will have been one for Christ because of the movement that started with just one name. Just think, if you reach just one name this year and they reach one name each year, in 33 years, the whole world would know the love of God. How's that for future focused? The One Name Campaign. I want to show you a picture here. Uh, My friend Andrew is from Halifax. He's an up-and-coming, talented photographer. But look at this picture. He gave me permission to use it. And you know where this is. Write it in the chat if you already know. It's Cape Breton. It's beautiful. Look Look at the color. Fall in Cape Breton. When he first showed me this photo, I immediately said, it makes me think of life. You know, you see, you see the seasons, you see the multiple hills, you see the points along the ocean. You can see into the distance and it, it fades into the atmosphere, but you can just see a few turns in the road. You know where you're going to, you know it'll be worth it, but you don't know what's coming along the road on the way there. You're just making progress towards the goal. You you can only see a few short turns in the road. You know, if it weren't for a direction, if it weren't for a destination or a goal, progress would be futile. The Apostle Paul seems like he always had the end in mind. I want to tell you today why I think it's important for us to have the end in mind as well. So we're going to be talking 
from the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and talk about making progress. Do you know how long Paul spent in Thessalonica planting the church? Type it in the chat if you know. Some believe it was three months, but many believe it was only three weeks. Three weeks. You can read about Paul and Silas in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, and I would encourage you to. It's a pretty exciting story. It talks about how many of the devout Greeks and the leading women came to faith before the Jews then riled up some of the ragtag crowd. They forced this mob to go to Jason's house to try and pull Paul and Silas out in a riot. And they said, these men who have turned the world upside down, well, they've come here also. Paul and Silas are encouraged to flee from the city. The mob didn't get them, praise God. But can you imagine three weeks in Thessaloniki to plant a church? Paul preached three Saturdays in the synagogue, three Sabbaths. We've been in this sermon series potentially longer than Paul was in Thessalonica planting the church. How fast do you have to work? How much faith do you have to have to see a church planted in just three weeks? Um, Our church plant, our daughter church, our partner church now, Open Arms in Parsboro, it's like it's, it's been six years now, right? Six years old. Paul planted a church in Thessalonica in three weeks. Isn't that crazy? Talk about making progress. The persecution only got worse for the church in Thessalonica. That mob that raided Jason's house to pull Paul and Silas from it, and they fled from the town. It just kept getting worse. So Paul responds by writing his first letter to the Thessalonians just a few months after leaving. How do you instill hope in a persecuted, suffering, infant church? How do you breathe hope into a tough situation? What would you write to the Thessalonians facing that persecution? How do you maintain hope and expectancy in a pandemic instead of giving in to this defeatist attitude of, why bother? You know, it'll probably be canceled anyway. What is real hope? How do we live as a hope-filled church? I want to talk about hope today. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 4, verse 13. Here's what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. This verse is often read at funerals. Asleep, the term means those who have physically died. You know, I can only imagine in the persecution in the church in Thessalonica, where believers are being dragged from their homes before the officials of the city, I can only imagine that some had lost their lives. That's what the mob wanted to do with Paul and Silas. They wanted to kill them, get rid of them. So Paul talks about those who have died. The spirit is separated from the body. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's the physical body that looks as if it's asleep. If you've ever been to a visitation or a funeral with an open casket, it looks like someone's sleeping. Remember when Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus was asleep? In John chapter 11, And they were like, well, if he's asleep, then when he wakes up, he'll be all right. But Jesus is like, no, that's not what I mean. Lazarus has died. When we die, 
our physical body remains. But for the believer, our spirit is immediately in the presence of God. There's no purgatory, there's no holding place, no in-between. When you close your eyes and take your final breath, as a believer, you're immediately alive in the presence of God. Now, grieving is others who have no hope. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've said goodbye to a few people in hospital rooms. I remember being with a pastor friend, and, and we were visiting one of the guys from church, and he really wasn't doing well. Uh, we all thought he was on his deathbed, but you'd never know it. I mean, he's telling stories, he's cracking jokes, he's talking about sports. <laughs> it was kind of weird. He had so much peace and assurance of what was going to happen next. I remember we walked out of the room, and, and I turned to my friend, and I said, well, that's probably the last time we'll chat with him this side of heaven. And then I've said goodbye in a hospital room where there didn't seem to be that peace and that hope. The room's just filled with, with a palpable fear. You can cut the tension. You can see it in their eyes. It's like you're watching a movie. The first funeral I ever did was for an unbelieving family. Uh, the grandmother had passed away. And I'm pretty sure the only reason they chose me was because all the, the pastors were on vacation in St. John at the same time, and I was the last resort. That's why I was asked. I remember I'm like 23, 24 years old. I wore my spiritual care badge from the hospital because I didn't know how else to identify myself as the pastor in a group of strangers. So I show up at visiting hours. I chat with the family. The visiting hours were quick. The funeral was short and sweet. The reception was silent. You could hear a pin drop. It, it was so awkward, silent. And I don't think it was because the family wasn't that close. They were a fairly normal family, loved each other. They, they just didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to talk about. There were no answers. There was no hope. There was no understanding of life in Christ after death. To live without hope is the Latin term from which we get our English term, desperation. So many people are living in desperation today. And it's not really living, is it? If you've ever been desperate, you know it's just survival. Just get through it. The thought is, you want me to think about eternity, and I'm struggling to make it to the end of the month, to the end of the week, to get through the day. How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to survive this? let alone think about eternity. But I want to define a term here. When I, when I say hope, I'm not talking about just optimism or just positivity or just wishful thinking. We're talking about a faith-filled expectancy. The anticipation of what is to come. It's not, I wish it would happen. It's, I'm waiting for it to come. The future is secure for the believer, and now we're waiting for it to come. So what's the hope that is to come? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the message we preach, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. How do we know that there's more to come? How do we know that there is life after this, life after death? Well, it's because Jesus lived after death. You see, in my mind, it's just that simple. Because Jesus came back to life 
after death. Why do I believe there's eternity of life with God after death? Well, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And I believe him when he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We mourn for loved ones who have passed on. I'm sure the Thessalonians were sad about lost loved ones. But if they knew Jesus, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We know that they're more alive than ever in the presence of God and will be united with them someday. Paul explains then how the living and the dead in Christ will be united again. He looks to the future. He looks to the end of time. Here's what's going to happen. Do you ever wish somebody would tell you what's going to happen? (laughs) Well, here's what's going to happen. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is our future hope. That Jesus said in John 14, I will come again and take you to myself. Paul said of the Lord's table, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is coming back for his church. Make no bones about it. That is the end game. That's the most significant and longed for future event that can be stated. Jesus came. He died. He rose again, he returned to heaven, all the while with the promise that he will come again. In fact, many have pointed out that the Bible says more about the second coming of Christ rather than the first. Jesus is coming again for his church. Now, what will that look like? Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. A cry of command, a voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. You know, Michael is the only name of an archangel that we have in scripture. There's probably more than one archangel, but we only hear of the name Michael, especially in the Christmas story. But this, I believe, is the introductory event of eschatology. This initiates what the Bible has to say concerning the events of the end. This is the doctrine of the rapture. Those who have died, trusting Jesus, their spirit immediately is with God while their body remains. Their bodies in the grave are the first to be raptured, to be taken. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful thought? This is the rapture. When the church is caught up, swept up, taken up to King Jesus. You see, we believe in the imminent return of our Savior for his church. At any moment, Jesus will call us away and we will always be with the Lord. Just think about that. Potentially before I'm done preaching this sermon, Jesus will return for his church and we won't make it to the end of this message. We're going to be in the book of Revelation in just a matter of weeks. 
And we're going to close out this three-year journey through the Bible with the Gospel Project. Uh, We've talked through the 70 weeks of Daniel. Maybe you remember that timeline that I showed as we explained the 70 weeks. Let me give you just a quick snapshot. The rapture is Christ calling his church home. We're snatched up, we're seized into the clouds to be in the presence of God. This, I believe, initiates a seven-year period called the tribulation that we read about in the book of Daniel. The last three and a half years of the tribulation will be much worse than the first. When God pours out his wrath on the unbelieving world who rejected his loving invitation. It's then going to be followed by the millennial reign of King Jesus where he rules the world with his saints. And Satan is subdued. He's bound for a thousand years. After the millennial reign, Satan will still tempt and lead followers to rebel in a final battle called Armageddon. Jesus, of course, is victorious. Satan is cast into the lake of fire with his demons and his followers. A new heaven and a new earth mark the eternal state of experiencing the presence of God forever. Now, I realize that there are multiple views on those events and the order of which they take place. Whether you're pre-trib, pre-mill, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-tribulation, or whether those terms mean absolutely nothing to you, whatever your understanding of the order of eschatology, we have to believe this from scripture. Jesus is victorious and he's coming back for his church. You can't get around it. Here's the point of Paul saying these things. Look at verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, why is it an encouragement to know that the end is in sight? Well, it's because it gives hope. It gives expectancy. It gives anticipation as we go through the joys and we go through the trials and the suffering of this life. Why is the pandemic so difficult on us mentally and emotionally? Well, it's because there's no clear end date. And when the reopening plan is discussed, Lord willing, today we'll find out a little more. It's like, yeah, we'll see if that actually happens, right? But you can picture these these Thessalonians. Knowing that Jesus is coming back helps them endure their intense persecution. Steve and I were chatting a bit yesterday and made mention of so many of the black spirituals, those songs that people in slavery in America would sing about heaven, about crossing the Jordan, swing low, sweet chariot. I've told you about hiking the Funday footpath before. Uh, It's by far the hardest physical thing I've ever done, which means I've had a pretty easy life. Uh, On day two, there are a number of beach walks that you can choose to do instead of climbing over the elevation of the trail on the cliffside. If you get the low tide just right, and I mean you've got to get it right. And you know what the cliffs on the Bay of Funday are like. It's like uh, when you're driving to Economy and you go by Economy Point, you see that big cliffside jutting out there. If you get stuck in the tide, there's no way you're climbing up the bank. We came to a beach towards the end of the day right before a place called Telegraph Brook. Now, Telegraph Brook is just this little inlet in the cliffside, this little beach, not that wide. Uh, The guys were tired. They didn't want to climb the hill, so we went for it. Here's the thing. We, We couldn't see around the cliff point to know how far before Telegraph Beach. 
We couldn't see the end point. We didn't know how far we had to hike. So we went for it. We came on the beach around the point next to this 80-foot cliff. The tide is coming in fast. We knew we were in trouble when we rounded the first point because as we saw in the distance, there was another cliff point that we had to navigate before we could see the beach where we could go to safety and continue on the trail. So the sand on the beach comes to an end. Now we're in seaweed and rocks, boulders the size of cars, and that wet seaweed is slippery, you know that. With a heavy backpack, it's so hard to stay on your feet. I mean, we've all got bloody shins from the rocks, the barnacles, the water's coming in fast, the group is stretching out, some of the guys are running ahead to see how much farther I tried to stay at the back because I felt responsible for the stragglers. I mean, I'm the pastor who convinced these guys' parents to let them go on this hike, and I was going to take care of them. I better not lose them on this beach. There were some pretty sincere prayer times, let me tell you. So we're waist deep in salt water now. We're climbing around these slippery boulders, and I'm thinking, why didn't we climb the hill? Why did we choose the beach? But I'll never forget, way up ahead, my buddy Ryan, He's hollering from the top of a giant boulder way down the beach. And he says, guys, we made it. The end is in sight. It's right here. You've got it. It's not long now. Oh, let me tell you what a sigh of relief that was to know that the end was in sight. You know, it's easy to get hung up on the theology and the debates about the end time. But just imagine this church reading this letter from their father in the faith, Paul. Ever since the angry mob ran Paul out of town, things have just gotten worse. They're suffering major injustice at the hands of their neighbors for following Jesus. I can only imagine they're losing friends, family, their jobs, their homes, all for claiming the name of Jesus. (laughs) Way worse than getting stuck on the beach in a rising tide. And Paul says, Jesus is coming again. He's coming back for you. He's coming to pick you up. What, what if we're killed before he comes, Paul? What then? Well, it doesn't matter. In fact, if you die in Christ before he returns, you'll be first in line when Jesus returns for his church. The end is in sight. This is what it looks like. You know, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the fear in a moment will fade into the glorious presence of King Jesus for all eternity. That's our hope. We need to embrace that hope. So let's talk about what that hope looks like. And let's get a little more practical. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For yourselves are very aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know, people have spent their lives trying to determine when, the events leading up to, how we can see it coming. I mean, you can buy books that say that the world's going to end in 2012. (laughs) But coming like a thief. Have you ever had your wife go away for the weekend? Or teens, maybe your parents go away. You throw a party. You don't clean all weekend. You got dishes on the counter. You got pillows and blankets on the floor. You got shoes and boots all over the doorway. Guys, maybe you have renovation material in the living room that you never quite got done. And then you see the car pull in the driveway, right? Can you feel that? 
Are you excited for their return? No, you're panicking. You're shoving stuff in closets. You're dumping dishes in the oven to try and hide them. You're stuffing pillows and blankets under the bed. Your loved one has returned, but you weren't ready. You weren't prepared. My son and I, uh, we love to watch rally car races. Those people are crazy. They drive at insane speeds on these little windy dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. How do they do it? Well, they're professional drivers with a professional car, but also because the most important thing in every vehicle is the navigator sitting in the passenger seat next to the driver. They've got a set of notes describing the course and calling out what's about to come next. They're yelling the next thing to come into the driver's ear so that he can prepare, he can adjust, he can downshift, he can apply the brake. If you don't know that there's a hard left and a turn over the crest, then you'll be off into the woods somewhere. They need to know what's coming to know how to drive, how to prepare. If we know that at any moment, around any turn, Jesus is going to call us home to heaven, shouldn't we adjust the way that we live to match that reality? I mean, shouldn't we prepare for it so that we're not surprised? So that when Jesus comes for his church, we're not embarrassed, we're not ashamed of the way that we've acted, thinking that he is absent? How do we prepare for the imminent return of Christ? How do we prepare for the rapture? We're aware of it, we're talking about it, now how do we adjust accordingly? Let me just give you one practical way. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 3. Paul says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Pregnant women. I remember when Reese was about to show up, we had the hospital bag ready. We knew the fastest route to the hospital. We knew the floor. We knew the tower in the hospital building. We were prepared. But let's be honest. Let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room. How many of us are actually conscious of the rapture on a regular basis? Like, how many of us wake up thinking, maybe this could be the day that Jesus returns for his church? Maybe a few would say, you know, that's me every day. Every time I get in the car, every time I lay my head down at night, But I I can only imagine that for most of us, it's not a thought that we often have. And why is that? Well, I think it's because of peace and security. You know, this, this world promises us both, doesn't it? There are so many things that we give our affection, our trust, our worship to in this world. So much of our attention is here and now. And so little is on the greater life that is to come. So here's the practical advice. Start letting go of the things that you find your peace in here and now in this world. Loosen your grip on the security, the surety that you think you have in this life here and now. And then more fully embrace the reality of what is to come. In a word, Live with a loose grip. 
Now, I've told this story that my dad has told before. Uh, Two buddies, they're fishing in a little boat. They're on a lake. One can swim and one can't. Long story short, the rowboat flips over. One guy swims to the surface. He looks around. His buddy's nowhere to be seen. So he dives under the boat. And there's his friend still sitting into the boat, gripping the seat for all he's worth. He's upside down underwater, but he couldn't let go of what used to bring him peace and security. And it's what took him under. How do you prepare for the imminent return of Jesus? Well, you've got to loosen your grip on the things of this world. And you tighten your grip on the hope of the glory that is to come. And then you live like it's true. Look at verse 4. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. We get to see the hope that is to come. We, we don't need to be surprised. We're talking about it right here, right now. We get to live in light of the end and know that there is victory and glory in the end. Look at verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Let's live like we actually believe that Jesus won, that we win That Jesus is coming again for us, his bride, his church, his beloved. Let's live like we're awake, like we're sober, like we understand, like we're paying attention. Let's not sleep through this life, but let's be active. Let's be working in the waiting. Look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He kind of touches on Ephesians chapter 6 where he talks about um, the armor that we wear. What's a breastplate do? Well, it protects your organs, especially your heart. What does a helmet do? It protects your head. That brain is so important, right? You can't function without it. The heart and the mind, the understanding, the emotions. Living like we know Jesus is coming again means guiding our thoughts And what we allow into our heart in light of that reality. You know, so easily we can succumb to this defeatist slump that says, whatever. You know, we'll we'll see if it actually happens. I'm not making any plans because, you know, we we need to think thoughts of hope-filled expectancy. We need to believe in our heart that Jesus is coming back for us. That the best days are truly ahead of us. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Look at this. We win. It's written right there. We win because Jesus has already won the battle for us. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to live in defeat. We don't need to live in despair or desperation because our future is victoriously secured in Jesus who died for us and rose again from the dead. What if we lived in light of that reality? 
What if we lived like we already won? What if you lived like you just walked out of the corner store having won the lottery? How would that change how your day would flow? I'm not talking confident and cocky. I'm I'm talking celebratory, thankful, jubilant, excited, joy-filled, looking forward to. So many of us walk around with our knuckles dragging on the floor saying, woe is me. I can't wait for this to be over. No, let's choose to say, Jesus, you might return before this day is over. You might call me home to paradise in your presence. I'm going to live with an excitement and an expectancy for what is to come. How do we make progress? We need to live with hope. We need to prepare for the imminent return of Christ. And we need to live like we believe it to be true. How would you live your life today if you totally expected God to return any moment? Would you make this moment count? I think you would. Would you join me in prayer as as we close this morning? Father God, I want to praise you. Thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and our soul knows it, God. Thank you that you've told us that you are coming again, that you love us, that we are your beloved bride, and there is a wedding feast waiting in heaven. You are preparing a place for us. And when Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way, you made it so abundantly clear. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. Father, I pray you would be the way that we would live this day. You would be the truth that we would proclaim this day. And you would be the way in which we would live our life, our only life, our abundant life through you this day, knowing that any moment you could return. Father, I pray that you wouldn't find us sleeping. I pray that you wouldn't find us embarrassed as we waste our time. But God, I pray that we would live in hope-filled expectancy. That we know what is to come. We know the end goal. We know the end game of the church is to be with you for all of eternity. And that's already secure through your death, burial, and resurrection. God, we look forward to that day when you would call us home. God, if there is any second thought in our mind about what we're going to miss about this life, help us to release those things that we find our peace and our security in. Help us to fully embrace the truth that one day you will call us home. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. God, we just think and imagine what that day is going to look like, to feel like. And Father, all of this conversation about the end times just gives us more motivation to be all about your business right here and right now, to make these days count. Father, before you return, would we be working in our waiting? Would we not be wasting our time? But God, help us to have our mindset on the future, on being with you for all of eternity and encouraging, and compelling, and working, and sharing, and serving, and supporting the people that we can in an effort to see them there in your presence through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power flowing through us. We thank you for your spirit today, Father. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your invitation. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.